we have uh, been looking from many different points of view from the different tenet systems at the self and the various characteristics of uh, themselves of the self and before we go on with uh, more detail I thought that uh, it would be a good time to do a long meditation on what have we actually digested so far about the self, specifically ourselves, and uh, what actually do we think of ourselves as a thing or as a uh, knowable phenomenon, that way, validly knowable phenomenon, and not just uh, intellectually, what do we, uh, you know, we don't want to just recite the various characteristics of uh, the self that uh, the false <coughs> self that we have uh, refuted but uh, how do we actually uh, deal with issues of uh, self and how does it come up in terms of uh, selfishness in terms of wanting to get our own way of uh, self-importance of uh, all the various disturbing emotions that uh, derive from the self. We've uh, spoken about uh, how the self isn't uh, something physical. It's not uh, matter or anything like that. It's not uh, a way of uh, knowing something, although the self does know, but uh, it's not exactly the same. It doesn't share five things in uh, common with uh, consciousness, the way that the mental factors uh, uh, do, primarily because, uh, well, we can analyze. It's something to analyze. Why is the self not a form of physical phenomenon? Why is it not a way of being aware of something? We've uh, seen then that it is a uh, non-congruent affecting variable, an imputation on the five aggregates. We've seen what the five aggregates are. We've seen that the self is uh, changing all the time. It has many parts. It can't exist independently of uh, the various aggregates, body, mind, emotions, etc. We've seen that uh, it can't be uh, known all by itself, that uh, to know it we have to uh, rely on uh, something before. In other words, uh, we uh, uh, focus first on one of the aggregates, let's say our body, or uh, some sensation that we're having, or an emotion, or something like that. And uh, because uh, the self is uh, very subtle in that uh, first moments of uh, non-conceptual sensory cognition, let's say, of a bodily feeling or something like that, uh, it is too subtle for the mind to be able to actually um, identify the self in that uh, moment. The self appears, of course, but uh, it's not able to really ascertain it as the term, as the term that's uh, there. So it needs uh, another 
few moments in order to actually recognize it. So in that sense, it's not self-sufficiently knowable. It's not like a whole in parts, like uh, you know, seeing the all the various parts of uh, your body. This person sitting in front of me and seeing the whole body that uh, is simultaneous. You don't need to first see some parts and then see the whole with the parts. We've seen that uh, various uh, um, ways of uh, explaining where the uh, defining characteristic uh, feature of the self is. That uh, the self is something which is uh, uh, has the defining characteristic according to Satrantika on the side of uh, mental consciousness for the uh, Chittamatras it was storehouse consciousness for the uh, Svatantrikas it was uh, the uh, mental consciousness that is the uh, a basis it's called the mental consciousness that has the basis for um, the characteristic mark I mean it spells it all out in the terminology which is, uh, which is there for some who says it can't be found on the side of the object of something, a uh, basis for imputation. And, uh, but that view that uh, there's something findable in the consciousness, mental consciousness, that's me, has uh, uh, an appeal. It's very uh, helpful as a uh, step. This is because it fits together with the uh, whole presentation that the uh, uh, that we have in these non-prasangika schools that the self is uh, substantially established. In other words, it uh, uh, can do things. It's non-static. Um, that's because uh, something that's substantially established is established from its own side and uh, from its own essential nature. In other words, there's something there and it has uh, self-established existence, existence established by a uh, self-establishing nature, which is what's usually translated as inherent existence. So something on the side of the object and where is that located? That's located together with the individual defining characteristic on the side of mental consciousness according to these non-prasangika schools. So, and we've also seen that various characteristics and so on of the self are uh, projected onto it by concepts, by categories. We've seen the uh, you know, whole development. I won't go into all the details again within the tenet systems of uh, how that works, uh, what sort of characteristics are imputed or uh, projected onto the self. So we've had a, a lot of discussion about uh, the uh, presentation of uh, the self leading up to prasangika, although we haven't gone into great detail on prasangika yet, because I think that it's very helpful to uh, get a foundation in uh, the uh, non-prasangika schools progressively. So now the question uh, arises of how much of this has actually sunk in. We've been talking about this for quite a long while. So I would like to invite you to meditate. We'll uh, do that for, let's say, 
15-20 minutes, something like that, so that we have time to really get into it and uh, examine, you know, what actually is me? Is it that voice that's uh, talking in the head? You know, this is one of the, what's called the, uh, it's associated with the course Selfless, self, you know, the coarse self that's to be refuted or impossible self that uh, some sort of entity or self comes into the body and uh, then uh, either is identical with one of the aggregates or is different from it and controls it, lives inside it, and operates it and uh, makes use of it. Do we think of that, you know, that uh, I am using my body to do this or that. I'm using my mind to try to understand it. You know, do we think of a self as separate from that? Is uh, myself this voice talking in my head? What is that? And how does that fit with uh, everything that we've uh, been studying? You know, what, what actually do we, how do we conceive of uh, ourselves? And as I said, how does this affect our behavior, our attitudes, and our emotions. It's one thing to have an intellectual understanding where we can just recite all of these uh, features. And another thing is uh, whether or not it uh, actually has some effect. It will only have an effect when uh, we have really not only understood it, by, but uh, digested it and have become familiar with it. And this is what meditation is all about, is uh, familiarizing ourselves over and over again with a beneficial state of mind. I mean, that's what meditation is. And it's just training through uh, repetition that uh, we build new neural pathways and uh, our habitual way of behaving and of emotionally reacting and so on will be different from the ones that were causing us troubles and being upset and you know taking everything so personally i think that's a a very good indicator of uh, how much we've uh, digested in terms of uh, how personally do we take things when people say things or do things and since we're in the age of social media and likes and Instagram and Facebook and all of that, um, what does it mean, you know, when people like what we post? You know, do we really care? What difference does it make? How important is that uh, to me? I think that's a very good indicator of uh, what we're thinking about in terms of uh, me. So let's spend... Uh, we say 20 minutes on this and uh, then we can discuss okay so we have uh, 
taken 20 minutes to uh, examine ourselves to uh, see what uh, we have understood I hope you've looked at uh, crucial issues I think one of the most crucial issues is uh, death what do we think about uh, death our death who's dying if we have uh, accepted and understood at least some level the uh, Buddhist understanding of rebirth what do we think in terms of uh, me who's going to be reborn these issues I hope you've noticed this uh, point about how the self is imputedly knowable not self-sufficiently knowable that uh, first you feel a little bit of pain in your shoulders or an itch and then you think I've got an itch or I hurt my back hurts if you slow it down enough you notice that that's in fact how it works self isn't known all by itself it isn't known just simultaneously with the body or a feeling it's a feeling of sadness and then I'm sad Which is interesting to note, very helpful to note in terms of what does it actually mean when we say the self is not self-sufficiently knowable. And what's the implication of that? There are all these sort of issues that uh, come up as you analyze and think. But what have you experienced? Anyone like to share? Someone. <laughs> yeah, the eye is very slippery. The appearance of the eye is very slippery. While uh-huh. meditating, it's like when looking for it, then it's uh, and trying to to find out where it is, where it moves, and so forth. Uh, the appearance always is very changing and then just when as it disappeared it comes back from the back from somewhere else some other appearance of the eye so uh-huh so he says the self is slippery the appearance changes all the time mm. what does it appear as yeah, does it appear as one of the aggregates your body or your mind uh, the body or the mind rather than saying your body or your mind no not really it's like a, it's like a uh, a con- it's like a, yeah. If if one asks, if one, I, I, certainly it's not. It doesn't appear as the body, and if uh, it's 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 lo- it's it's a mental uh, appearance, yeah. But uh, difficult difficult to to pinpoint there. Yeah. A mental appearance. Does it have a form? No. 
No form. No form. So it's a uh, an emotion. No. Feeling it of happy or unhappy. It goes along with an emotion. Oh, yeah. So. Goes along with an emotion. Well, but we've had our analysis of the five aggregates. So what is it? Yeah. Is it a mental factor? Is it a consciousness? Is it a? Does it have form? You said it doesn't have form. So what else could it be? Yeah, it's not findable. It's a problem. <laughs> it's not findable. If you look for it, but, it's uh, not findable. Yeah. If you look for it, you can't find it. Mm. But does it exist? Yeah. Otherwise, you couldn't look for it. Who's looking for it? Well, you could look for a monster under the bed. It doesn't exist. Yeah, but somebody's looking for the monster under the bed. I see. So who is looking for the self? Yeah, that's difficult. And that's me. So then, <laughs> does that establish that you exist, that you're looking for the self? Not really. It just feels like. Pardon? It just feels like. It feels like it. So, what is investigating? Is the mind investigating? Certainly. Certainly. So, then, is the defining characteristic of the self inside the mind? Is that what you could pinpoint as me? This is what all the non-Prasangika schools are saying. I mean, not Vaibhashika, but uh, Sanchantika, Chittamatra, and Svetantrika are saying. It's a very appealing point of view. It's mm -hmm. a very, it feels like that. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's not findable in the mind either if you look for it. So it's, it's not findable in the mind. Can you even find the mind, let alone to find something in it? Even this is not possible, yeah. Even that's not possible? What does it mean to not find it? You can't, you can't point to it. You can't point to it? Well, there are a lot of things you can't point to. That does, that's not terribly profound. I can't point to... What are things you can't point to? I can't point to north because I don't know where it is. To what? North or south. Not while sitting in this room, no. Okay. I can't point to my mother. She's not here. She's dead. I mean, there are many things you can't point to, so that's not terribly profound. That's why we say that it's not uh, helpful to just uh, jump immediately into prasangika, that you can't find things. You know, it's trivial. You have to know what it means that uh, it's not findable. What is the line of reasoning of uh, dependent arising? Dependent arising is the king of reasons for proving voidness. So, what is it talking about? You're talking about persons now? Pardon? In general or persons? Well, in general. I mean, what does it, I mean, to relate back to what you've been speaking about. You want to avoid the extremes, the two extremes, always, right? The simplest form is neither one nor many, in terms of the self and the aggregates. They're neither the same thing nor are they totally unrelated and different. Mm. So, what are the two 
extremes that one wants to avoid with uh, dependent arising. And dependent arising has to do with mental labeling, right? So the two extremes is that, remember, what is the definition of self-established existence or inherent existence? It's that there is a referent thing that corresponds to the referent object that's findable. What in the world is that talking about? What that means is that in the object, in the basis for imputation, the aggregates, specifically the mind, mental consciousness, that you can actually find the thing there that's holding up me. So that the mental lab the label me actually correspond you know what it refers to corresponds to something findable on the side of the basis for imputation. So there's a me in my mind because the defining characteristic of me is there because it goes from lifetime to lifetime just as the mind goes from lifetime to lifetime, whether we think in terms of, you know, mental consciousness on a subtle level, sutra, or foundation consciousness, or take tantra, you know, the subtlest uh, clear light mind. There, you know, it's a defining characteristic on the side of the mind. That is one extreme, the extreme of, you know, absolutism. The other extreme is that the concept labeled on the aggregates doesn't refer to anything. So it's neither of these two, that there is a referent object of the concept me, of the word me. There is a me. It's not that it refers to nothing, and it's not that it refers to something findable in the basis for imputation. That's what it's talking about. So that is actually very, very profound. Is there a me in my mind that's talking? Feels like that. This is automatically arising. Automatically arising, grasping for the self, according to the lower systems. Well, even... Prasanka would say it automatically arises. It could be based on doctrinally believing in the accepting the system, the lower systems, but it can also automatically arise. It does, doesn't it? Because it feels like that. That's what automatically arises means. Mm. You don't have to think about it. It feels like that. Mm. It's very believable. So how does that help us? Is there me, Mark, who's going to be reborn? But there's an actual findable Mark, or Katya, or Alex, that's going on into future lives? Then it would be that Mark has been reborn as this or that. Certainly not that. 
Is no one reborn? What's the relationship between me now and a future, the next life? Or me now and my old age, for that matter? What's the relation? Come on. The continuum. The continuum is the basis for it, but what is going to be the relation? Relation has to do with the tendencies, the potentials that you've built up, positive or negative, and the strength of the tendencies of all the various mental factors, positive ones, negative ones, ones that can go either way, like concentration. That's what's carried along. That's what's going to be there in our old age, in our building up. So a network, a collection of that, it's called. And into future lives as well. And then everything depends on the circumstances for what will arise. Without the circumstances, they can lie dormant. Someone could have fantastic, uh, you know, talent and instincts for playing the piano. But if there's a war going on and there are no pianos, it's not going to manifest. These are the type of things to think about. Did you look at how personally you take things? And what's behind that? When someone is acting in a way that's not very nice toward us, how do you take that? How do you respond? And if you respond in terms of being upset, how do you analyze in order to stop being upset? Anyone? How do you deal with that? It's not fun to be upset. Here, this person is acting like a complete crazy one, you know, yelling and, you know, being or not. You know, being nice to me, say my boss at work, or whatever. How do you deal with that? These are the tools that we're learning. Anyone? You realize that it's not about you. You realize that it's not about you. Yeah. Right. So what is it? What's happening? It's their built-up habits. It's their built-up habit, exactly. It's, you know, whatever is happening at home for them or their, their lives and their, yeah. Exactly. Whatever is happening at home with their and their lives is all sorts of, they didn't just pop up out of nowhere right. and start to be nasty to us. They, there they, is they causes and conditions for them yeah. Yeah. to be like that in circumstances. And what about poor me, the victim? 
happened to me this weekend that I I was with someone and they gave me food. So it was uh, dumplings and uh, they had vegetarian and with meat. Uh-huh. And this person mixed the two of them uh-huh. and gave me the plate. And because they know that I'm vegetarian, I got upset because I realized also now I'm going to have to figure out which one has meat or not by myself when you know that I don't eat meat. So why would they mix? Uh-huh. And I noticed that I was upset and I almost said something. I felt it. But then I realized, well, but this person has no, no obligation to give me food. They're doing this with generosity. Mm-hmm. And I'm the one taking it personally, thinking it's about myself and why they don't pay attention to me, you know. Mm-hmm. So my way to deal was to be thankful that I'm already getting food. Mm-hmm. This person is being generous with, with me, so I should focus on that instead of focusing on Right. Them. Very, very good. Very good. That, uh, you're vegetarian. You were served dumplings that uh, some were meat, some were vegetable. The person didn't uh, differentiate them or separate them. And rather than get upset about, you know, they were, you know, why are they not thinking about me? Thinking about uh, the kindness of uh, them to actually prepare a meal. So this is. Uh, put all the blame on one thing, it says in the mind training, which is on self-cherishing. This is why I'm upset, because they were inconsiderate to me. It's just so difficult sometimes. <laughs> it's so difficult to do. <laughs> oh my God. I just feel like, I know it's such an egotistical thing, but I just, I feel like I deal with incompetent people constantly and it just irritates me. Right. I feel like I have to, like, there's a, like a thing of like being understanding mm-hmm. and then there's another part of me is like I'm dumbing myself down. Right. So like she's dealing with incompetent people all the time. Like it, emotionally, mentally. At work. Emotionally, intellectually, so professionally. Mentally. Socially, socially, <laughs> and that you have to dumb yourself down in order to deal with them. Well, on the one hand, I mean, it is very difficult because one needs to have compassion for them. That, uh, you know, obviously being incompetent just, you know, is not a very happy state of mind for anyone or way of dealing with the uh, world. But, uh, to get annoyed with it, it can be very annoying. I mean, that's how we experience it. But uh, what is behind that? Behind that, I don't know if I've actually uh, explained this to you, but uh, you can, if you analyze it in terms of the five types of deep awareness, Underlying it, it's a mixture of the what's called the sphere of reality, deep awareness, which is basically to uh, it's very strongly it's this and not that, and then you add the grasping to me onto that. So it's not what I want it to be, which is that they're competent. 
You know, I want it to be competent. So you're making this strong differentiation and rejecting, of course, what uh, you don't want, what it's not. Well, what it is, which, you, which is not what you want it to be. I mean, different ways of formulating that sentence. <laughs> Let's not get into grammar. So, there's a difference between saying, between feeling, this is ridiculous, you know, the way they are, mm. And then you can get into, well, what do you expect from samsara? Most people are, Shantideva said, most people are completely infantile, which is true. So what do you expect? And um, to try to avoid the other side of it, which is I'm so much better. You know? rather than taking it personally that this is what I don't like and I'm so much better mm -hmm. and I'm not like that. Mm -hmm. That's what you have to deconstruct in that situation. It still to... means that you have to deal with infantile people. No, no, yeah, I do take care. I try not to, I try to end it there where I'm like, okay, this person's incompetent, but I try not to like balloon my ego from that. Right. Yeah, but I'm like, I don't try to be like, oh, um, it doesn't, get to the point where I'm like, I'm better to them. Right. It just stops at the point like they're incompetent. <laughs> right. So rather than going, adding to that, I'm so much better, it's just that they're incompetent. Well, that can be simply a statement. Right. Or it can be a judgment. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm also naturally very impatient as well. Right. So We're I just, very... I want things, when I know how to do something, it had, like, let's, what's the point? Let's, come on, let's go. You know, that's kind of my attitude. Like, right. Like, when they are, in, I know exactly that, yeah, that situation when you are, it's very right, so, when you are, so. you know, you know how to do it, you know, you want it done properly and you want yeah. it done now and they're not able to do that. Well, these become opportunities for practicing patience yeah. for... <laughs> As Shanti Deva said, you know, if you give a task to a child, don't expect them to do it well. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. So if you ask the two year old to carry a cup of tea and they spill it, well, what do you expect? Mm -hmm. So if you get, you know, it's your own fault for giving it, it's, you know, Shanti Deva says, it's your own fault for giving it to them to do. You want it done properly, do it yourself. So, if you give it to somebody, expect that they're going to screw up. I do. <laughs> and you do, and it's sad, so therefore it's an object of <laughs> compassion. <laughs> but it's not easy, because we don't have patience. I think it's just we, we, want, we reject it. We reject. Yeah. Now, there's a difference between rejecting the person and rejecting their behavior. Yeah, no, I try to keep that. Like, right. And I try not to like inflate my ego from that you know it's just like a moment of understanding that someone is they're just not as or as they're not as quick at something or they're not as smart about something or they're not as good at something right you know it's just like you have to kind of accept it right you have to accept that others are not you know well, what are you saying? You're saying that they're not as quick, they're not as smart, they're not as capable as you are. But then, 
again, we go to Shantideva. You know, there are always people who are better than you are. And likewise, there are always people that are worse than these other people. I mean, I just the context of understanding also in this in that whole sphere is like people have different um, uh, goals mm-hmm. in doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Some people are perfectionists. Mm-hmm. Some people like to be very efficient. Some people don't value those things. All right, the time they don't with care. Everything right. it doesn't matter, and and it's not that it is a very American thing because those things are like we associate those things with being right or you know it's this idea of competition you know it's like it mm-hmm. comes from it's a very deep you know and being the best or whatever and so it's yeah it it forces me to be like patient like everyone is has different standards it's mm. <laughs> and it's like it's not it's not a high or low standard it's not a vertical thing it's more like a horizontal like a spectrum Right. Everybody has different standards of what they consider important in life. Right. Being efficient is just another variable. And that, uh, you know, some people value that and and are high on the scale. And some people don't consider that important at all. And some people are very ambitious and some people are just Right. Some people are ambitious. Some people are not. not. So you look at... You start to look at it in terms of all the mental factors and all the tendencies, you know, not just the 51 in the list, but all of them, many, many more, and seeing that each person is an imputation on that collection of all these different variables, aren't they? And it can motivate us to try to improve those variables within us that are not very strong. And these other people might have more of something else that we don't have. Always. Always. But this is, uh, I mean, it's interesting, you know, we think it's more important to be a very good brain surgeon than it is to be a very good plumber. So why is that? So we think certain things are better than others. Mm-hmm. And it could be influenced by society, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Or our parents. Well, that's why it's very important to differentiate what is doctrinally based or based on propaganda and what's not, and not to be overwhelmed by it, if we analyze and see that doesn't make any sense. But anyway, these are very good issues, very good things to discuss, to analyze, to always check up on ourselves. You know, and how are we using the tools that uh, we've learned? You know, put all the blame on one thing, self-cherishing, that's very, very useful very helpful. You know, why am I so upset? I'm so upset because I'm just thinking about me, me, me. And what I wanted, poor me, the victim. One could also get into the whole karma discussion of, you know, what have I done similarly that 
have caused me to get into these type of situations, to always deal with incompetent people, for example. What's behind that? It could be from making fun of incompetent people. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm as incompetent <laughs> as they are. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or more incompetent. <laughs> but also, as Shanti Davis said, there's always people that are worse and always people that are better than me. In everything. In everything. So it's relative. Everything is relative. So what makes me so special? Then we get back into that whole thing of nothing special. You know, this person is acting incompetently. Well, nothing special. Lots of people do that. If we're at work, depends on how much responsibility we have. If we're the boss and we're responsible for the work going well, and we have people that don't work very well, well, you do have the option of firing them, of course. And if you can't find anybody else and you have to deal with incompetent workers, you just, you know, compensate. Guide them. Guide them. If they're capable of learning. Some people won't learn. Don't want to. They think that they know best. You find alternative ways. If you're just a worker in an office or company, you do your job as well as possible. Rather than spend all your energy complaining about how the other workers aren't aren't working well. That doesn't help. Now, you can also be in an office situation in which you do things very well and they don't, and they're jealous of you and try to jeopardize you and, you know, all sorts of things like that. That happens. And then you have to see do I want to stay in that situation or not. I always liked... Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's advice that he had given, which was uh, to approach someone who's giving you a hard time and saying, you know, I'm having, you know, I have a big problem. I have a lot of difficulty. Could you help me with it? And my problem is that the way that you're doing things really screws me up because it, you know, affects my work and so on. And it makes me get very upset. Can you help me with that? You know, what, what can we do to change that situation? In other words, you put them in the position rather than being the uh, wrongdoer. You give them the opportunity to give, to be the do-gooder. You know, by asking them what can they do that could help this, that, to help me, to help this situation. Mm-hmm. This was Thich Nhat Hanh's advice, which is very, very wise. I've tried that, and it really works. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there are many different strategies. And the more strategies we learn, which comes from 
life experience, but also learning all the various methods that uh, the Buddha taught. And we find in the Buddhist teachings, then you have a large choice of methods to use. If one is not so effective in a particular situation, then you use another. And the more that you work with these and meditate or think about them or whatever, uh, the more automatically they'll come up in your mind when you're in a difficult situation. You don't get so caught up in being upset. And inevitably, put the blame on one thing. If you're upset, it's because you're taking the thing personally. That's for sure. Even if it's this righteous upsetness, you know, this is not right. That's also because, you know, I'm the judge, you know, and I know best. So it still comes from this taking things personally. Of being upset. That doesn't mean that you don't use discriminating awareness to differentiate between right and wrong, to use our Western terms, you know, between what is harmful and what is beneficial. We still do that. And then, without being upset, without taking things personally, either us personally or them personally, find some skillful means to be able to change the situation. As Shantideva said, if you can change it, just change it. Don't get upset. If there's nothing you can do, why get upset? It's not going to help. That also is helpful. So, I think that's all for this evening. So we think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.